Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session, Picking Up the Pieces, The Aftermath of Trauma, featuring Candace Fox, Sarah Krasnerstein and Kate Wilde in conversation with Bernard Zuhl, recorded live at the 2018 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Hello. Please welcome uh, three interesting human beings who happen to be writers with uh, a sense of, of what it takes to deal with trauma and maybe what picking up the pieces means. At the end of the panel, we have Sarah Crescenstein, law lecturer and author of The Trauma Cleaner, Kate Wilde, investigative journalist and author of Waiting for Elijah, and Candace Fox, author of several novels based on crime and other investigations, including Crimson Lane. Another way, to, another way to look at today. Hey, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the odd one out here? <laughs> we got the fiction writer. Oh God, I'm going to try and really take this seriously. <clears throat> Candice might understand this next bit. That the uh, a subtitle maybe for this panel today is "No one here gets out alive." <laughs> or at least undamaged. <laughs> the, the people who pick up the pieces are varied. The victims, the families, the investigators, those sent in afterwards to clean and literally pick up the pieces. We'll try to cover most of these in, such, in the hour we have today. One thing we've all heard is just get on with it. Move on, put it behind you, forget about it. Sarah, Sandra Pankhurst, the, the trauma cleaner is someone who believes in action and moving on. But does she really believe that she can leave all that has happened to her behind if she says so? You know, I mean, to the extent that you can never know what's happening in someone's mind or their heart, I think, you know, the, the, her busyness and her perfectionism, which, you know, I write about at length, is, you know, a means of distraction. Um, and that's instead of, you know, sitting in the feeling of, you know, the aftermath of trauma, which is, you know, hot and formless and very difficult. She distracts herself with this exceptionally compassionate, very difficult work. And to the extent that I could identify that in my own life, I think writing is an obsessive uh, compulsion that we have and you can worry over it. Um, ad infinitum, and that takes you away perhaps from all the things that we can't control in our own lives. So I could identify with some of that. Moving on for her mm. ends up becoming something that, that um, can't, can't continue. She's confronted by yeah. history returning and the things that she's buried yes. emerging. Can she pick up the pieces of her own life? By the end of your book, we're left with a question about how much further she can go. I think she's done the best that anyone in that situation could possibly have done. I mean, you know, this DIY approach to mental well-being, if she had had access um, in the 60s and the 70s to psychiatry or psychology, these were the days when transsexualism or cross-dressing was in the DSM. Um, the treatment for that was electroshock therapy. So what are you left with? Self-medication. So you take drugs and you drink and you forget and you smoke yourself into you know, sickness. And 
So this means of kind of forgetting and just sheer forward momentum is its own flavor of resilience. And I found that deeply compelling because you know, the research tells us what, what is resilience. Resilience is forward momentum plus something kind of <clears throat> magical. It's the ability to remain sufficiently open to form these ever-deepening connections with ourselves and with others and move forward. So it's not just the moving forward, it's kind of that vulnerability. And that vulnerability had literally been beaten out of her. Mm. So the fact that while many in her position would have ended up dead or in prison, she has built this wonderful life for herself is, you know, worthy of veneration, but you know, has the element of sadness because it lacks that, you know, ability to connect yeah. in a real way. An inability and also a clear decision not to. I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know how much agency at the end of the day um, you can attribute to that situation, but yeah, I think it's the best that you could have best outcome that was possible for her. Sure. Yeah. Okay. The the parents of Elijah, who's who's shot <laughs> by the police, um, are urged to leave it be to to be mindful of others who are also suffering. Um, and any action they take, the impact that may have on, on them, but also their own happiness, to set aside their own happiness. Why couldn't they just let it be? Why couldn't they just let Elijah's death be, yeah. let it sit? Um, because they knew their son and didn't believe that he could possibly have done something to um, antagonise a situation such that he needed to be shot. Um, they understood he was mentally ill. Um, Elijah suffered from paranoid delusions and he, he's paranoid. the core of his paranoid delusion was that the police were going to shoot him. And they did. Mm. Um, and there... <coughs> it's funny, when I hear you talk about resilience, I think the, the Holcombs are the most resilient people I know by Sarah's definition of that willingness to... a forward momentum but a willingness and an ability to still stay open to making human connections. And they wanted those human connections to be with everybody who was traumatised by Elijah's death. Mm. Um, within that was a deep, not hot anger, but a deep anger at the injustice of their beautiful son having to die because of his illness. And that's what they couldn't let sit. And they seek out, uh, or at least they want to help pick up the pieces for some of the other people, the policeman who shot him in particular, that you know, they don't want to direct their anger at him. They, they see him as a victim in this as well. They see, they, they did and have always and I think still do see Andrew Rich, who was the police officer who shot their son, as one of the great victims of the situation because um, Jeremy, Elijah's dad, said to me very early on, there isn't just one thing in that day that led to Elijah's death. So many people mm. made mistakes and that's true. Um, Andrew Rich, but by the nature of the fact that we leave picking up the pieces of mental illness, of a mental health crisis to the police, mm -hmm. who are not the, necessarily the best equipped people <laughs> to deal with them, by the, by the nature of the fact that we leave that up to them, we leave someone like Andrew Rich holding the can for a whole lot of mistakes and failures that may have happened in the 12 hours prior, in the 24 hours prior, in the 12 years prior. Mm -hmm. um, and they, having been through, in a very open-hearted way, having been through various mental health crises in their family before, knew that better than anyone and, and weren't willing to let anyone off the hook 
anyone in the community off the hook by saying it's just this guy's fault and let's blame him and then the rest of us can move on because they know deeply how untrue that is. Because when, when people ask to move on, what, what we're asking them to do is let us move on. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. And that's one of the main things I wanted to get across in writing... ...and one of the things I learned and wanted to get across in writing Elijah's story was... ...you know, Elijah's dad said this to me at the beginning of what was for me a seven-year process... ...and it took me the entire seven years of writing the book to realise how true it was. Um, and that is that we are all responsible for what happens. We all have a tiny part to play in our interactions with everyone and what the outcomes of those are. And to scapegoat this one police officer lets us all off the hook and that's mm. nothing is going to change if, mm. if we allow ourselves to continue to scapegoat particular individuals and, and make it that the equation that simple in our heads. Yeah. Candice. Hi. Investigators who won't let go Mm. Of, of a crime, uh, of, uh, of a victim, of possible guilt and not having solved the crime. Mm. Uh, it's, it's a trope of, of crime novels, but it's also true mm. in, in life. Yeah. Um, those who, who go into their retirement holding the files and wanting, yeah. wanting to find an answer somewhere, mm. refuse to, grow, to cut their beard until uh, the, yeah, yeah, the case yeah, is yeah. solved. Are these people special cases who go into <coughs> this work and who develop these obsessions, if you like, mm. because of uh, who they are or does the work make them? Good question. Um, yeah, I write about uh, detectives who, who you, you know, whenever I start a novel I figure out what the actual case they're working on is and what is the major malfunction of that character. What is it that makes him so resilient? And the, we're talking about resilience here and how important it is and... and you know, so my latest um, series, I have three different series. One of them is with James Patterson. And one of them is my own. And one of them is my own, but it's finished. And the one uh, that makes me think about this question, um, Ted Concaffey uh, is the detective and he's accused of a terrible crime. He's accused of um, abducting this girl from a bus stop. And he loses everything. And he needs to be... Uh, resilient enough to deal with that his his first reaction is to run he runs to Cairns because he's Australia's most hated man he seems to have gotten away with this brutal sexual assault he's on every newspaper he runs and then he um he finds someone who also has a trauma his to-be partner Amanda Farrell um and so I suppose being around his people makes him you know, being around somebody else who's experienced something like this and who's running and who's traumatised, you know, helps him to be resilient. Um, so in my novels, he can't let this case go because it involves him. He has to find the person who's abducted this girl. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time, pulled over to this bus stop, you know, had a noise in his car uh, that he wanted to fix. just happened to be that the teenage girl was there. And when he pulls away, two minutes later, her bus picks, tries to pick her up. She's not there. Her backpack's there. And it's just this incident that ruins his whole life. And he, he kind of has to deal with it. Um, and, and in my own life, I've, you know, you just have to deal with it has been a sort of a trope for me. Um, my mother uh, had four kids and then she adopted two and then she fostered over 150 kids. So um, we had kids coming in and out of our house who, you know, their parents have just been arrested or it's just been discovered that, 
you know, that living in a drug den or something. And I'd come home from school and I'd say to my mum, I want to leave high school because everyone's picking on me because I'm a freak. And mum's like, people are picking on you at high school. See this kid here? His uncle's been sexually abusing him for the last year. He has problems. You don't have problems. You need to deal with it, you know. And... And that's like, that was how I lived. And so I, I kind of deal with trauma um, by just, you know, I'm, I'm a delightfully cheerful person. <laughs> and uh, that's how I deal with it, is by carrying on and being cheerful. And, and the whole you must carry on is something that goes into my fiction, yeah. I have to say, your, your mother tops the, think of the starving children in Ethiopia. Is that? <laughs> <laughs> she was, uh, you know, she created quite a, um, a chaotic little circus because not only would she bring in foster kids uh, she brought in wild animals that were wounded Um, so I would come home from school sometimes and there's a man-sized kangaroo in the backyard or you know there's a a box full of bats in the garage or something and uh, she she liked to rescue trash as well so she has a a six foot tall paper mache flamingo that she um, rescued off the Back of it fell off the back of a Mardi Gras float in the gay lesbian Mardi Gras in Sydney, and she rushed out of the crowd and grabbed it and then ran away with it. Um, you know, so rescuing things and people who need her is her way of dealing with her own trauma for when she was a kid. So, did she see herself as picking up the pieces with these children that were brought in? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, kids coming in and you know, they they would come in, they're filthy, their hair is like all hanging down, they haven't had their nails trimmed, they're covered in cigarette burns, you know, that was the epitome of being needed, you know. And and me, I, I sort of grew up very self-sufficient and, you know, high achiever, fairy princess, and, and I didn't need her. And her way, my way of pointing out of the family and making myself known was to to be that I'm the best I'm the high achiever that's why I'm writing three novels a year at the moment and you know I was talking I don't want to drop names like I got holes in my pockets but I was talking to um Lee Child at um (laughs) Thriller Fest (laughs) try to say that as casually as I can (laughs) and he said to me how many novels are you writing right now he's a super chill dude he's like oh how many novels are you writing right now and I was like I'm writing three a year. He said, what? Why? (laughs) His eyes bugged out like this. And I said, I have an incredible sense of, you know, needing to achieve all the time. He was like, wow, there's something wrong with you. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that's it. Yeah, dealing with it, yeah. We may have to have a separate panel just for your trauma. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I don't want to be a mic hug. (laughs) I'm very conscious of that. There are two very good Richard Fiedler conversations with Candace. If you want to hear more of that, go and find Please. them. I've listened to them both. They're awesome. I don't want to be a self-promoter, but I'm also on later today. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness you don't want to be a self-promoter. <laughs> Under this shirt, I'm wearing a shirt that has my own face on it. <laughs> I'm going to stop now. <laughs> we are talking about trauma. Um, <laughs> Just this past week, uh, a coroner raised issues of police training and uh, approaches to people with mental health issues in the case of a of a young woman who was shot dead by police. Uh, like, Kate, it's an echo again of the 
the uh, coroner's comments that uh, in Elijah's case, was any good achieved by all the trauma that was gone through for that that uh, in extensive period of, of uh, delay in coronial inquiry, uh, and therefore any value that came out of Elijah's death? Um, I think I think enormous value came out of Elijah's death. If you if if we want to look at it in those terms. Um, Elijah's um, legal operations and shenanigans around Elijah's death were in the court system for five years, coronial, criminal and civil. Um, and what came out at the end of that and and various New South Wales police officers have, have said to me very clearly this these changes were not made because of Elijah, they were in the pipes anyway... And, and they were in the pipes anyway, but I do think that they w- were given the money to happen big, largely. Elijah's death was a big part of that. So where police officers... At the end of that five-year process, the New South Wales Police brought in a new training system for officers who to in how to deal with people who were in mental crisis. The police officer who shot Elijah had received one hour's training in, in how to handle one of those situations. And you imagine, just for a moment, being... A human being, forget the police officer tag for a minute, you are a human being turning up to a house that you do not know and you do not know what is on the other side of the door Mm. and you open the door and at the end of the hallway is a man who is screaming at you that he is Jesus and he's holding a machete in each hand Mm. and he then decides to run down the hallway at you and you've got one hour's training in how to deal with that. Mm. So the police definitely were uh, our victims in the trauma cycle in all of this. So police had been given an hour's training. They now receive every police officer on the beat in New South Wales gets a full day's training in how to deal with someone in in crisis and 300 officers a year get um, an extra four days training. That's still... You know, the people who teach them have got four degrees in... You know, psych nurses who actually deal with these people effectively have got four degrees. So there's no way you can impart that knowledge to a police officer in four days. And I don't think we should... Expect that of of police. I've completely forgotten what your question is now, Bernard. I'm going to be open about it. <laughs> I've also forgotten the question, but I would like this is interesting for me. Mm. Why your work is so important? One of the reasons, you know, we put so much pressure on the legal system to pick up, you know, these pieces when it's actually criminal justice is the last note in the song. Because if we didn't want the trauma to begin with. You know, we wouldn't have this social acceptance of infinite money for criminal justice. We would be investing in mental health. We would be giving that to health services, human services. And yet we seem caught in a cycle. Thank you. Thank you. Um, caught in the cycle where um, we allow our politicians to pretend like, you know, ever punitive laws are geared towards community safety. Uh, when that is a lie. If you want public safety, you will be investing in early intervention much earlier in the process. So, you know, it's one thing, you know, whoever said you never go broke creating fear, we'll get clicks, we'll get votes. Um, But it's incumbent on the rest of us in terms of what Elijah's dad said. We are playing along with our vote. We should not accept, you know, this burden on police and our, you know, sentencing system and our correctional system when, you know, this is about our safety, the safety of our children in a real sense, and it's not something we can achieve by doing it harder. Um, and and where, that, where that 
where change is possible, where help is possible for people who are in psychiatric crisis who need it and where the help is possible that will make the police's job easier and the ambulance officer's mm. job easier and the families of people in crisis more easy is, is back here, not, not here where Audrey Topic or Elijah Holcomb are armed with a knife and facing a police officer. Mm. It's, before the cri- it's before it reaches crisis point and that's the training that we can and do give yep. police is how to intervene when a self-harming teenager has locked themselves in the bathroom and is screaming at their mum and won't let their mum in to help them and the cops are called because the neighbours are sick of the noise, is coming in at that point, de-escalating the crisis, bringing in the services, the mental health services or whatever sort of services are needed at that point and stopping it from ever reaching the explosive point where where deaths happen and destroy multiple lives in this ever-rippling sort of biggest circle around that around that death. There was a lizard on your foot. The lizard went up over her foot. Yeah, there it goes. Yeah. I just didn't want you to jump up and scream in the middle of the... Excuse me. Sorry. (laughs) It's over over there now. Sarah, I guess it's probably worth asking at this point, what what does that actually mean, uh, pick up the pieces? Uh, Who's... What what are the pieces and, and who's picking them up? Right. So, um, you know, the subject of my book is a, a trauma cleaner, uh, the crime scene cleaners or um, industrial cleaners is another term. And when I first stumbled across Sandra, I was, at, I was wearing my uh, legal hat and it was a forensic support services cons- uh, conference. And, you know, I think of myself uh, deceptively or otherwise as a grown-up in the world and yet I was completely shocked to find out that this entire profession existed. What is a trauma cleaner? What what does that mean? I was shocked to find out that you know the police and the firefighters, first responders don't do their own cleanup. But of course, they're off making sure you know taking care of these emergencies, and somebody has to step in to make sure the rest of us don't see the blood on the footpath. Um, so you know these cleaners come in, they do crime scene cleanup, cell cleanup. Um, but once I got my head around that, I was further surprised that many of their clients are alive. I mean, they're hoarders, they're people who live in squalor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, their work comes from a variety of sources, government, corrections, private individuals who suddenly confronted with this intractable family member or the death of a loved one, real estate agents, um, trying to clear out an apartment where there's been an unattended death. Um, so, yeah, they literally come in and they pick up the pieces and doing the research over the four years, people would say to me from time to time, "Oh, I'd make a great crime scene cleaner," as though mm. it was something quirky and dark and cute. And I think there's uh, there was there is clearly a deep understanding of just the transcendentally exhausting proportions of the work that they do. Not just physically, I mean, clearing a house where the rubbish hasn't been taken out in twenty or thirty years, but also mentally. I mean, that's a huge act of heavy lifting. And nothing else, the stench, as you describe it. And sometimes that almost comes off the page. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I don't think I can say thank you, though. (laughs) One of the things I I took away so strongly from from reading The Trauma Cleaner was that Sandra is the one who goes in and and supposedly cleans up the trauma, but what she's picking up is the physical evidence of the trauma yeah. which yeah, which has right. come out of these people and, and the only way they can express what's going on in here is with bags of feces <clears throat> plastic yeah. bags of feces in the hallway or yeah. 
or whatever the physical manifestation of that. It's like a barrier. My my I my mum says to me all the time, "Am I a hoarder?" And I say, "You're a functional hoarder." You know, like, but she she uses her stuff to keep people away. Mm. You know, she ha- or she has a um, she has this stuff in her house, and I think that if you can come in and deal with that, then you're welcome. And if you can't, then you know you should get out. Um, and so you go into her house, and it's just this crazy circus of things. She has a full size zebra you know, in her lounge room. And there's nowhere to sit. She hasn't sort of allowed anywhere for guests to come and sit. And I've sort of said to her, you're trying to keep people away. And she's like, no, 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 I just like my junk. I'm like, no, no, no. (laughs) There's nowhere to be. She's surrounding herself with her stuff. And, yeah, it's like a physical manifestation of of what's going on in there. And when you say there's nowhere to be, and we're talking about resilience being this ability to keep moving forward, it's yeah. as though that's mm. the, the, the trail that's left behind. You're she, always moving to the next place instead she, of... She keeps talking about her own death as well. My mum's like a total... She, you know, a couple of years ago, she legally changed her name to Ocean Mermaid. And um, like that's the first part of that story. The second part of that is that everyone went, Oh yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, like no one was shocked. Um, and uh, where was I going with this? Moving forward. Oh yeah. Um, she keeps talking about her own death, and she's like, "I don't know what I'm, you're going to do when I die. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that?" And I'm like, "Bonfire," you know. Um, but she's using it as a kind of a marker for her future as well, like. How are you going to deal with what I've created when I'm gone? It's a really comp- her hoard, or it's not a it's not a destructive kind of hoard the the type that you write about. But her collection is such a you know it's such a tool for her. Yeah. yeah this, have you read the Swedish art of death cleaning? No. Very beautiful. <laughs> Sounds little like book. it's my kind of <clears throat> thing, though, right? In, in Swedish, they have one word for death cleaning, and that's yeah. just part of their thing. So I picked it up. It's a very beautiful looking book. But it kind of deals with this concept, which they have apparently in Sweden, of cleaning up your own stuff so your kids don't have to. Yeah. And the yeah, woman yeah, that wrote yeah. it is very kind of utilitarian, slightly passive aggressive. But, <laughs> you know, she's like, uh, folks, old folks, it's going to happen. So don't expect someone else to clean up after you. And yeah, kids, if yeah. your parents are, are just not facing that reality, it's time to have a conversation. <laughs> Um, you know, cult- culturally relative, I, you know, we're Greek and Jewish, and that's not ever going to happen. That, you can't be like, that's a conversation is never going to happen. But also as an interesting concept that, yeah. you know, well, what do we think is going to happen? And, mm. and we kind of are anchored to our crap. Yeah. And it's a fortress, and it's kind of very human at the end of the day. I, I I deal with it by not taking her seriously. And mm. she says, what are you going to do with my collection of, you know, 300 satin moomoos? Because she likes to wear satin moomoos. I said, the homeless people of Sydney are going to look so glamorous <laughs> for like a whole week. Just all these shiny satin floral moomoos and everyone. But <laughs> I, should, <laughs> I'm, I am listening to her, but I'm not, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to put a like. big in for one if you have my size. <laughs> Sorry? You? If you have my size, I'm willing to put a oh, bit in for a second. Pick your colour. It's just a rainbow. I bought her back 20 from Singapore. She was like, they have my favourite ones in Singapore. Can I please have eight? I bought her 20. You're an enabler. You do love I me. Am. <laughs> I am an enabler. I am. 
the, I like her to be happy. You had exposure. Um, you laugh about this, and, and you know it's not trauma really. In, uh, though, as you say, it represents an element of, of how your mother sees the world or separates herself from the world. But mm-hmm. uh, you also were exposed to trauma, second or third hand, hearing stories as a child yeah. of uh, your, your <laughs> father, a, a prison officer. Yeah, uh, tales of, of the people he encountered. Yeah, I probably had a very traumatic childhood but I don't acknowledge it. Probably if you sat me down with a psychologist for a couple of hours, he'd be like, whoa, <laughs> I could write a textbook on you. But, uh, you know, I in this household with all of these kids, I could get away with stuff. Like I would sit, I found out if, if I sat in between my dad's chair and my mum's would sit on the couch. And he, yeah, he was a prisoner's, prison officer and he would say things to her like, oh, we were going to release this guy today, um, but we went to his cell to get him out and he had slit his throat with the lid of a can of tuna. And I was like six or seven years old. I was like, whoa, how do you do that? You know. But probably hearing that, I remember like a bodily sensation of going, whoa, that is a concept. A person can kill themselves, you know, with whatever they find around. Um, and and I would go into my parents' room. I would sneak in there and read their true crime and I would read the police magazines with all the gory photos. Mm. I always remember I was going through a police magazine once and I felt my mum come into the room and I was looking at this gory photo of a car accident and I th- I froze because I was like, well, I'm in trouble. And she goes, yeah, that's that's how thick your skin is. Look, that's the muscle and that's the fat and that's the skin. Isn't that gross? And then she kept going and I was like, oh, I got away with that one. Like she didn't mind, I guess, that I was seeing those disturbing things. And when I met James um, Patterson for the first time, I said to him, like I rushed up and I was like, hey, Jim, hi, I, uh, I'm a huge fan of yours and... I read Kiss the Girls when I was 12. I really loved it. And he, was, he said, wow, that's really inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> what was your mother doing while you were reading that book at 12 years old? And I was like, don't even get me started. <laughs> you know, Moo-moos. Yeah, moo-moos. <laughs> she's collecting moo-moos. Yeah, so probably being exposed to all of that stuff like has de- desensitized me a little bit. Um, but I, you know, I mean, it's it's good for me. It's good for my career and that sort of thing. But sometimes it's hard for me to judge things, you know, how how traumatic a situation is, or it, I've got a skewed sort of look at violence and death and gore and that sort of thing. Uh, it's interesting the, the, uh, how being immersed in it can skew your your thinking. I mean, uh, Kate and Sarah, you, you you both became enmeshed in the lives of the the people you wrote about. Um, becoming friends and confidants. Um, but that didn't... Did that hide the traumatic effects at first uh, or serve only to accentuate it later for, in each of you? I think for me, I um, relate to something Sarah said earlier on and, and actually also something Candace said. Candace said, talked about your character running away to Cairns, was it? And yeah. finding a partner in trauma, finding yeah. someone else who was going yeah, through yeah, a trauma. Yeah. Um, and I think I had my own trauma, my, a, a history of episodes of mental illness that I had never really, you know, fully dealt with. Um, and then in coming across Elijah's story and in meeting his family and in seeing so many parallels between his family and my own, 
and his situation and my own. Um, I buried my own trauma and, and sort of hid from my own trauma in Elijah's for a long time. Um, the fact that I then went through a, a two-year episode of the most, the most serious episode of, of depression I've ever experienced for about two years while I was writing the book mm. is what helped me get through my own trauma, sort of Elijah's death and, and getting to know his family and watching them handle the immense grief and frustration and anger that they were going through as well as dealing with mental health issues in their own family and the aftermath of Elijah's showed me how to do it well, how to do it gracefully. And they their trauma actually led me out of my own. So in a lot of ways, while I'm grateful that I was able to give the Holcombs something by writing the book, I always feel they gave me much more. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you have these opposing duties to kind of write as empathically as possible as possible and to write it as accurately as possible. And sometimes they bump up against each other. Um, but, you know, I think that you, you lose no objectivity by trying to imagine yourself into your subject's shoes. And you'll never have the exact same experience, but you'll have pretty similar emotional experiences if you've lived long enough. Um, and drawing on that to kind of, you know, particularly in, in Sandra's case where there were, you know, large gaps of just memory blackouts. Um, and no matter how much research I did and who I found from her past and what sort of stuff was in the secondary record, I just sometimes could not get from A to B. And so, you know, that act of kind of empathic imagination, well, what would, have ha what would it have felt like um, to, not to not remember whether you were at the birth of your first child or whether you had a wedding uh, the year of your gender reassignment surgery? I, I won't get a factual truth, but I'll, if I'm curious about it, I'll get an emotional truth. So, you know, it's, it's a tricky thing in nonfiction and, and in reporting, but I think you're left with, with something that's equally as important to the factual record if you draw on your own emotional um, closeness with the subject. Mm. And I think that's something that, that is often missed in nonfiction. I'm often asked as a journalist how, you know, you're meant to be, um, you're not meant to get involved, you're meant to stand back, mm. you're meant to be objective. How could you write a book like this, which has got your own experience in it and these people's experience? Mm. And I think the ability, what you're talking about, filling in those gaps, mm. that is where empathy comes in and, and delivering that emotional truth I think is something that belongs just as much in non-fiction as it does in fiction. But for some reason there's a cultural reticence about allowing those emotions to exist or, the, or acknowledging that those emotions have a truth to them. It's almost as though... We want our non-fiction to be straight up and down fact so that we don't have to feel anything if we're going to open the pages of a non-fiction book. We'll, go to, we'll, we'll get a fiction if that's what we feel like doing. Yeah. Um, Which is, you know, I just don't buy that at all and I really, I, I'm not, you know, coming along with it because at the end of the day, you know, this hierarchy of truth claims as if it was a real thing, you obviously have a duty to your reader to say, I don't know what happens here, but this is what I reckon, and this is what I'm basing that reckoning on, and you might agree, and you might not agree, but here it is. 
Um, you know, Warner Herzog, one of my most favorite documentarians, makes this distinction between the truth of accountants and the artistic or the, you know, ecstatic truth. And who's to say that the latter is no more valid than, mm. than the former? Mm. And also, I think, Kate, we have the same, the same experience of, well, if you're asking your subjects to kind of be this vulnerable um, so that that information, that experience can be received with empathy by the reader, we have a similar burden of vulnerability in the writing to kind of not just as a matter of kind of diligence to lay bare to the reader the filter through which we're taking in all the information, but also to sit with them in that vulnerability and to see what happens out of the, out of this author-subject relationship, um, which produces its own additional layer of truth and insight on top of the story itself. So, well, yeah. Picking that up, I mean, uh, your your own experience with uh, depression mm. informs and uh, provides an, uh, an empathetic empathetic connection with the people that you encounter along with with Sandra. But what did your experiences with them do to you? Well, you know, it was... Uh, so I, uh, for those who haven't read my book, it alternates biographical chapters about Sandra's life with me kind of going to work with her into the homes of hoarders and these people that live in squalor. And I went on about three times as many jobs that made it into the book. Um, and so I could see over the four years, you know, patterns... There was, you know, dust that had accrued on the research over time, this longitudinal immersive process. And what seemed startling at first, very alien and other, slowly, well, not I say slowly, but it was quite quickly apparent that this was just human pain. And so any preconceptions I had about the type of person that becomes a hoarder, the type of person that lets themselves go in this way, quickly fell by the wayside because these were people who had had you know, very successful careers, and they weren't saved by virtue of their professional accomplishments or the size of their bank account. Um, you know, it was purely a function of their ability to sustain around them these relationships of friends or families, if only just one person, who when inevitably life throws shit at you, that person can help you stand up to it and get you through. Um, and so these were people that fell entirely outside the social network. So in terms of my own experience, and it was very difficult for me to write about that. I mean, it was useful as a narrative device um, to put myself in there to get from A to B. But also, I mean, ethically in terms of a contract, if I was asking it of these people who are generously letting me into these dark homes and kind of explaining how they got there, I needed to say, well, you know, there but for the grace of whatever you want to call it, I would have gone too. Um, and could still go to if, you know, it all gets too much and I burn, you know, the house down around me that holds me up because relationships are hard. Mm. Everything is messy. We are imperfect. And it's that ability to weather it and to sustain it and to kind of love anyway that is your only, you know, guardian against the inevitable brutality that comes from living a long life. And oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> When you are immersed in, in that, though, um, there are ripples through your life. There are positive responses as well. Uh, mm. I mean, Candace, being, does being immersed in trauma in some way, even if it's only in research, yeah. spring load an imagination? It does. Um, I get to do lots of things as a crime writer, which um, might not be so easily excused, uh, in any other profession. Um, for example, I've been living in California for the last year and while I was there I started writing to a serial killer 
um, in San Quentin on death row and I went to visit him and people have said to me, is that, like, is that research? What were you looking for? Why were you doing that? And I, I was sort of saying, I just want to, I just want to come face to face with, this guy is the most, the most evil person that I can think of you know, who's still alive. And, and you know, I went and I visited him and I sat with him um, and I talked to him about what he'd done. And I sort of used that. It was more profound than I imagined it would be because I've been scratching and scratching and scratching at this guy to find just that 1% goodness in him. Um, he's an incredibly narcissistic psychopath um, and, you know, and I think I found the fact that he has a kind of a dark, snarky sense of humour and I kind of used that relationship, that 1% good that I found with the 99% evil to evaluate other people in my life. And, you know, I had a really traumatic experience. I don't want to be a mic hog, <laughs> so I'm telling all these stories. I can't tell how long they go for. Um, I had a really traumatic experience in my first marriage. I was with this guy for seven years and I met him in the Navy. I joined the Navy for some weird reason. And um, we were together seven years and we got married. We were married six months. And then he sat me down. Uh, he came home from work. We put on a roast. We poured two glasses of wine, sat me down on the balcony and he said, look, we need to talk. I've been seeing someone else. I've been seeing her for nine months. Um, I'd like you to pack your things so I can move her in here, you know, like this sort of stuff. The incredibly traumatic moment. Um, and it cemented that guy in my brain as like 100% bad evil, you know. So in meeting this serial killer, <laughs> it's made me kind of say to myself, yes, he did a really awful thing, but that's probably, you know, 10% of the, he's got that 90% good and I shouldn't forget that goodness that we had even though he did this terrible, terrible thing. Mm -hmm. You know, so yeah, yeah, some of the stuff I do, some of the very traumatic things that I do um, has made me reevaluate re my own trauma and, and how, you know, how that, how that pl might play out in my fiction, yeah. He was a shit, but he wasn't a psychopath. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he was a shit. It sounds like a... Uh, one of those take five articles. Meeting a serial killer <laughs> made me reevaluate my life. <laughs> and there's a picture of me like looking wistful. Um, yeah. There's someone in the audience about to write that right now. Uh, <laughs> it's one of those you win fifty dollars if you write the story and send it in. You, yeah, I'm doing that this weekend. Doing it. Um, I want to throw a couple of, of um, quotes in here that I've pilfered them from. Uh, from, well, people here on stage. <laughs> but uh, just to get your, your responses to them as, as general principles, um, anything which shows the human strength under the most appalling circumstances helps me to survive. True for each of you? Who was that? That wasn't me, was it? <laughs> that doesn't sound like me. Yeah. It sounds far more profound. Yeah. No, I think it, it, was, it, was it sound right, right? Uh, it was you. Uh, oh, it was me? Yeah. <laughs> Huh. What wonderful writing. Like, well, cool talk. Talk. <laughs> <laughs> this is a cool trivia quiz. Who said this amazing oh, no. thing? So that's what happened. There's no good that comes from writing a book. You forget, <laughs> and then you're so intimidated by it that you can never do it again. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so that was 
said by no, it wasn't. It was it was one of the clients, Sandra's clients, and we were sitting and discussing her exquisite book collection. Um, and that was like very early on in the research process, although it happens late. And so it was profound. And I recognized all the books around her, the books that I am built out of. And so it was profoundly disorientating to be sitting with like 20 cats and you know five years of cat shit layered like a cake um, and all these friends and the books around us. And I asked her, what do you like to read? And she said, you know, anything that, uh, that shows me the human condition gives me the strength to. And it was beautiful because I initially understood it as an expression of her lack of self-awareness. But fuck, I mean, what she had been through, the fact that she was there telling me this and we were having this conversation, um, that was about Viktor Frankl's The Meaning um, of Life. Mm -hmm. And was, you know, relatively what she had been through, to have made it through to that point was staggering. So yes, we are held up, you know, I guess our internal settings um, are how strong we just happen to be by nature, but also ideally by those relationships around us. But sometimes it can just be a book, you know? I've had that in my life where it's like just, you know, you have that moment of camaraderie um, that says someone else ha has made it through. I, I can do this as well. Um, and that she could say that means that she still has the strength and the knowledge to know that there's a way out. You know, she's yeah. still got those books on her shelf. She still has that knowledge. So where she is in this moment is not where she necessarily is going to end. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, she did go very downhill after that. But yeah, but I mean... Tried. <laughs> in the eternal present of the book, that is yeah. still the possibility. Yeah, as it should be. Well, it can be she, Pollyanna. <laughs> she, she had that, um, as Candice described, that, that 1% or 10% yes. of clarity in this case of... Yeah. Uh, I think her name was Kate. Sorry? Was that, was that the name, Kate? <laughs> Glenda. Glenda. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. yeah. Um, but... But Kate, I mean, does that is there truth in that for you? And certainly, having gone through what you did with the Hawkins, uh, that that sense of seeing what 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 can, can be endured. Yeah, look, it, it, that's what draws me to anything in in my journalistic practice. I am I am constantly drawn to stories, um, not only stories of people in deep trauma, because sometimes there are stories of great joy at the end of a very difficult situation. But that expression of the human spirit under whatever conditions and, and often it's the most difficult conditions that bring that out I'm just so attracted to that and enlivened by that because I think we're all on this planet doing our very best to put one foot in front of the next every day and sort of you know get through to the end of the busy week and get the kids to school and get our job done and you know not run up not get into too much road rage and run up the back of someone before we get home <laughs> that anything that we can draw from each other if we would just open our little windows a little bit anything we can draw from each other to get us through um we've we've just got to grab that every time we see it and, and another quote again i i, I will admit that this is also from sarah so you won't have to right. try to <laughs> figure it out thanks um, but you're very quotable <laughs> <laughs> but, but particularly maybe candace uh, for you but order for, for three of you the, the opposite of trauma is not the absence of trauma the opposite of trauma is order proportion it is everything in its place mm. yeah maybe um yeah I think so. Uh, you know, I'm very accustomed to chaos and chaos is, uh, is traumatising. And so my brothers and sisters have all made very orderly lives and we don't like chaos and 
My brother, uh, whenever there's Christmas or something, there's inevitably some kind of dramatic spectacle. My brother just picks up his kids and leaves, you know, and, and, and that, you know, he just needs to get away from that chaos. And, and my, my husband, I refer to my husband as a super normie. He's a normal normie, but he's super duper. Like in their family, they've had um, the very same plastic Christmas tree for the last 35 years. And so the order that of that, like you go there and everyone has crackers oh. and dip and then we have tea and everyone sits in their certain place and then... It's deeply traumatising for me, Candice, I'm sorry. <laughs> I love it though. At seven o'clock his dad tapes the news like it's, it's order, it's order, you know. And I mean sometimes one of my um, sisters is a... Um, a, an ice addict and a prostitute and she's very criminally involved you know and sometimes I call I call Tim's parents and I'm like hey I just got this really good book review in the Sunday Herald you should pick it up and they're like yeah we got it right here because it's, it's you know it's Sunday um, and I pick up I call my parents and I say hey I got a really good review in the Sunday Herald and and my mum's like I can't talk to you right now I'm at the police station <laughs> Your sister's been arrested for home invasion. It sounds really good though. Okay, bye. Oh, you know, and it's, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's not predictability so far as structure, you know. And I think I was seeking that when I joined the Navy. I joined the Navy at 18. And sometimes I, when I'm doing a library talk or something, I say, if anyone can work out why I did that, I'd love to know. Um, because I was 18, I joined as an officer and I was, you know, two weeks in, I was in charge of people who have been in the Navy longer than I've been alive. And I also get violently seasick. So it was a strange choice. And I've, I sometimes throw it out there. And a lady at the back of the crowd one day, she said, you craved structure. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and then later on, she said, I'm a psychologist. And I thought, oh, good, that's $300 now, isn't it? <laughs> I think just just to off, I couldn't possibly follow that. I have so many questions. There's so many um, questions. I have a session later on today. Good. I'll be like, look at your programs. Um, so, order, order versus chaos. Watching, you know, Sandra in the act of cleaning and putting other people's mess in its place. Conscious, kind of at a meta level that. As writers, we seek to take all that, you know, amorphous feeling and order it in a sentence. I mean, that's just what a sentence is. And this larger point from my own life, my own experiences, that, you know, the opposite of trauma cannot be the absence of trauma. That it's impossible. We can't make it go away. What's happened has happened. But we can put it in its rightful place in the sense that that happened once. That doesn't overshadow the present. You know, it's sad and we've mourned it and we feel its effects and, you know, we can make a compassionate place for that in ourselves. But it doesn't have to be the story of our lives. It has, it's, it's seen in proportion relative to a whole life lived um, and the agency that we can choose to exercise in the present. So that form of kind of psychological order or relativity um, and, and kind of a ranking of experience or of emotional experience kind of came to the fore in the research. Um, yeah. And, and making stories out of trauma. That, yes. You know, that's what psychologists yes. do. That's what psychotherapists help us do. That's what, what I do. That's what 
novelists, <laughs> fiction writers and non-fiction writers help us do. We take trauma and we, you know, the human brain is built to turn things into stories and that is how we as animals um, process the trauma so that it can then live as a point on our history rather than the defining cloud that hangs over the entirety of it. And so mm -hmm. that is, I, yeah. storytelling is part of uh, turning trauma into something useful rather than a weight that's like an albatross around our neck. Yeah. Which maybe brings us to the maybe a core question underneath your writing, uh, those of us reading it. Crime, trauma, damage, um, it, it's a popular currency in our culture. The numbers here uh, suggest that, that that's uh, not a, a mere assumption. Um, it's commonly described as, as maybe desensitising us to, to crime, to uh, trauma in people, to, to pain uh, in others. But I wonder whether it maybe is actually teaching us more empathy teaching us empathy in the first place. Yeah. Well, we know from uh, just my law hat, there's research into jury, how juries behave and why, the psychology of decision-making. And we know, and we've always known from our interest in story, that people's punitive feelings go down in relation to the amount of information that they have. Hmm. And so, you know, I think context is everything. We have more information about someone else's lives that makes us not only more empathetic towards them, but empathetic towards ourselves. And we have more evidence about how to do things better. I mean, we, we do so many things so poorly. We are still stuck in the cycle of make it better by not talking about it. Mm -hmm. When we know that only fear and disconnection <laughs> lives in that silence. And yet we don't talk about you know violence. We don't talk about sexualized violence. We don't talk about death. And so everyone who's alone and dealing with that as though it was somehow related to their own culpability when it's just chance, um, the more information we have about life and the reality of life, the better we can, better job we can do at being human, I think. You can see it play out no more deliberately than in the editorial comments for some of my novels where you've got publishers coming in and saying, it's it's boring. Kill more people, you know. Um, but they've 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 got that advice for me. But then they're also going. I want to I want to really feel it. I want to know this person so that when they die, I care. <laughs> so mm. it's it's they're trying to create empathy, and you'll only enjoy the book if you have empathy. And so they're doing it kind of in a deliberate way on the page. Um, and yeah, yeah. So you can see. You can see that. I think it's um, there's a little bit of a taboo about enjoying crime, uh, you know, and I think that that's in the, back in the day people used to hide the cover of their book, you know, and they very deliberately looking like a crime novel with the massive font and the big knife on the front or something, you know, and, and you're enjoying it and you're going, oh, my God, you know, this guy's going to get his head chopped off. Um, and But the fact that you care at all about those characters and getting the getting the guy caught who's done it and that sort of thing means that you, yes, you are enjoying it, but you also do have empathy. It's the perfect mm -hmm. interplay. Mm. And, and Kate, I mean, and empathy teaching police for, for a start, empathy teaching us as people who might encounter, first of all, the situation of, of someone threatening themselves or others and then reading about it afterwards and uh, needing to understand what the police were going through mm. as, as much as 
the fear that we have that we might be in the situation of being shot by the police. And we must, we have to learn our empathy from something. Mm. We have to learn our empathy from something. And I think if if we on this stage and the other writers around here do our job well, you will feel empathy for all of the characters in our stories. You will be able to see the 1% of humanity in the serial killer. You will find the point of human connection with everyone and be able to hopefully spend at least a couple of pages in the shoes of that person, whether they be a fictional character or not. If we do our job badly, we're not giving you anything more than the next, you know, Daily Telegraph headline. Mm. And that's our job, you know, and that's what you have to hold us accountable to. (laughs) Well, hopefully we've picked up a little bit of empathy today. Um, and if you need to pick up uh, some moo-moos, there's someone here to talk about as well. I'm your uh, dealer, your moo-moo dealer. Please, please thank uh, Sarah Crossenstein, Candice Fox and Kate Thank you. And Bernard Zool. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2018. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.